We're back in the kingdom series as we go through the gospel of Matthew together. We're walking through this. This gospel will be in Matthew chapter one today. I'm going to go back to that same passage that our director of adult communities, Cam Stephen, preached on last week, which by the way, if you missed last week, I highly encourage you to go to our website. It is one of the best sermons on the Trinity that I've ever heard. Cam tackled the tough topic of the Trinity and did an outstanding job of really driving it home down to, uh, to our level, down to a ground level. So I encourage you to go and check out that sermon. We'll be back in that passage again today in Matthew chapter one. You can open up your Grant Memorial app to the passage. You can also um, open up your chair Bible to page 1468. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, or if you don't know where your Bible is, or if you know someone that needs a Bible, you get the point. Take it, right? We should put bows on these just so you know it's a gift, right? We want you to take it. When, when you walk out with one of these Bibles, we're not looking at you sideways. We're celebrating that we're putting the, we're putting the Word of God out into your, out into your life, out into your, to your home, to your community, to our city. There's a famous quote by Gandhi where he says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And having worked with millennials, with young adults, with college students, for a lot of years, you hear this often of, I like Christ, but I don't like the Christian. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And my response, as I've grown in my faith, as I've matured as a Christian, my response now is, really? Really? What Christ are you referring to? What Jesus are you in love with? I want to seriously question those presuppositions of the real Jesus as opposed to the one that we've made in our own image. What Jesus was Gandhi referring to when he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christian. And when I talk to young adults, especially a, a younger generation, when they have this reaction against the, the institution, my question is, tell me about this Jesus that you like so much. I think the real issue for most people is that they don't know the biblical Jesus. They like the Jesus that they have created in their own image, not the Jesus of the Bible. Their own personal Jesus, and I want to challenge your presuppositions, I want to challenge your Christology today to really push hard, because this matters a lot. Eternity hangs in the balance when it comes to who is Jesus Christ. And last week, Cam just nailed it. Jesus is God. Other people said it about him. He said it about himself, not just once, but multiple times. So how does your, how does your image of Christ align with how the Bible defines Jesus? Many have their own personal Jesus that looks more like a mixture of Dumbledore and Gandalf or a mixture of Mr. Rogers and Deepak Chopra. Jesus sounds like Oprah than the Jesus of the Bible. We all have a tendency, listen, to reimagine Jesus through the lens of our own lifestyle. We reconstruct Christ around our contemporary culture. 
Rather than bringing our presuppositions to the Bible of, I know who Jesus is, and I'm going to the Bible to find evidence to support my preconceived Christ, I go to the Bible in order to fashion my conceptions of Christ. It's the Bible that shapes and molds our Christology, not our opinions, not your family of origin, not the denomination. It's not Grant Memorial that defines who Jesus is. It's not John, a pastor. It's the Bible that determines who Jesus, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Listen closely to this quote from the book Radical by David Platt. We are, start, we are starting, he says, to redefine Christianity. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and to twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class, North American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe upon our comfort because after all, he loves us all just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes and who for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out the Christian span of the North American dream. We are molding Jesus into our image. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and to lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we are worshiping ourselves. That hits me hard. So I want to really question our Christology, our theology of Christ, which everything flows from. Everything flows from how we answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? When you peel back the layers of all the questions we could ask, of all the lessons we could learn, that is ultimately it. Our eternity depends on we answer that question, on how we answer that question, because the reality is an imaginary Jesus saves no one. So I want us to look at the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that sometimes makes us uncomfortable. If you're never uncomfortable at church, then I suggest you find a new church. Because I'm, I'm uncomfortable when I go to the gym, it's discomfort, but it's for my good. Intentional discomfort that causes us disequilibrium, to question the status quo, to question our faith in a way that leads to a deeper, more meaningful walk with God. So as we open our Bibles, we want to see the real Jesus, and we want our Christology to flow from Scripture. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit take your holy word and drive it into our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One day, Larry King was asked, if you could interview anyone... Who could it be? His response may surprise many of us. He said this, Jesus Christ. In an obvious follow-up question, King's interviewer responded, what question would you ask Jesus? I would ask him, Larry said, if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would redefine history. So today I want to tackle the topic of the virgin birth. I don't know if I've ever preached on the virgin birth before, but like many of us, we casually read over something that is so theologically significant, a vital doctrine that many of us have never truly considered. The first Sunday of every month, which is next Sunday, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together and we'll recite the Apostles' Creed together, which it, it, it affirms orthodox historic Christianity what the church, capital C, has believed and continues to believe for thousands of years. And the same thing that hopefully my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, if the Lord tarries, will say, because these are things that are unchangeable. These are things that are timeless. These are things that do not depend upon the culture. These are timeless truths. And one of those is born of a virgin. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has anybody ever asked you before about the virgin birth? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was virgin born? Now, some of us that were maybe raised in church or around religious circles, some of us maybe that have, even from a religious culture, our automatic response is what? Yeah, I've seen, I've sang the Christmas carols, man. I've seen the nativity before, but a, a follow-up question, if, if, if you have an affirmative response to that question, do you truly believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? The follow-up question is this, why? If I were to force you to articulate an answer to that question, why is the doctrine of the virgin birth essential to our justification? Would you have an answer? If you've been around a church for a while, you might have an automatic response, but to really articulate the reason, more accurately, it's a virgin conception, actually. So to preempt any confusion, let me take just a minute to distinguish between the immaculate conception, which is a Catholic doctrine, and the virgin conception, which is a Christian doctrine. The immaculate conception is a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in regards to Mary, Jesus' mother. Essentially this, the Immaculate Conception is the belief that Mary was protected from original sin, that Mary did not have a sin nature and was in fact sinless. 
The Immaculate Conception is not a virgin birth. Catholics believe Mary was conceived the normal way, but God made her immune from inherited sin. Here's the problem with this doctrine is the Bible doesn't teach it. When you go back to the scripture as the ultimate authority of faith and practice, the Bible never hints that there was anything significant about Mary's conception. Now, Mary was highly favored among women. Mary is an an incredible, devoted follower of God. But Mary needed the salvation that her son provided just as much as you do and just as much as I do. You know, it's interesting that Mary, her initial response was shock. So we have the narrative of Luke from Mary's perspective, which probably is the more familiar Christmas story. And then we have the birth narrative of Matthew from Joseph's perspective. But this was not something that people expected when the angel showed up and said to Mary, highly favored among women. God is going to implant a savior, the Messiah, in your womb. She, she didn't say, oh, I was wondering when that was going to happen. And when they went out, right, and, and God sent an angel to Joseph to reaffirm because he wasn't expecting it either. He thought the same thing I, I would think and you would think. And they went out and they communicated that God has put this in Mary's womb Everyone else, well, they weren't expecting it. Sure, he did. Yeah, God did it right. This was a this was a surprise. And Mary's first response is what some of our response is. How can this be? How can this be? Now, in Mary's defense, she pushed through that initial doubt. She pushed through that initial shock, and she embraced God's plan for her life. And a side note here, a little extra sermon for all of us is this, is we say yes to God even in the face of the impossible. Joseph, my good Joseph, the the first person to respond in faith to Christ was Joseph. When God said, what I have done in your fiance is of me, I have done it. Joseph responded with obedience. He said, yes, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't comprehend it. It seems impossible, but God has said it. Therefore, I'm going to embrace it. So you have Mary and Joseph that push through their shock, that push through their disbelief, and they believe in faith. So when it comes to the immaculate conception, at best, it's extra biblical. At worst, it's unbiblical. Some believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. But the question we need to always ask of things that I say on Sunday of things you hear anywhere else, regardless of the label on the building. You hear things on YouTube, you hear things online, you see things on social media. The one thing you should always ask is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And the Bible says that Joseph and Mary didn't consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. But after Jesus was born, Mary had a lot of other kids. That's what the Bible says. I think it's four brothers and at least two sisters. And so that's what the Bible says. I'm not trying to diminish Mary. Mary, I think in Baptist churches in particular, we, we have a tendency to diminish Mary. But you don't want at the same time to unbiblically elevate her as well. 
One theologian, this is the incarnation, God in the flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is God became man. The word for that is incarnation. One theologian said about the incarnation, listen, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. That's a massive statement. Something that we overlook. Something that we casually read over. One author says this, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. And if we find it offensive there, it is no point proceeding further. If the virgin conception Is the virgin conception an optional accessory to your faith? Do you believe that Jesus the Christ was virgin born? And if you answer yes, why? Why is it significant for you to believe that? What is the significance of the virgin birth? To begin with, it highlights the supernatural. And I get... I'm, a lot of this is flowing from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Great. He did a great job of, of explaining this in a way that was easy for me to understand. Well, not easy. This is one of those like last week. How does the incarnation work? Last week, Cam asked, how does the Trinity work? I don't know. Okay. guess we're done here. How does the incarnation work? How does God become a man with two natures, one personality? a divine nature, a human nature. I don't know, but God has given us a mind. He's given us an intellect. He's given us his word. He's given us 2,000 years of church history. We are the beneficiary of brilliant minds that have gone before us. That have, We're not the first to wrestle with these questions, with our Christology. This is probably the area that we're most prone to drift into heresy. When you look in the rearview mirror of the history of Christianity, Right? The, the early church fathers, they would have these councils where they'd bring in hundreds of church leaders. So this is in the, the fourth and the fifth century. And it was a lot of it had to do with what we're talking about today, the nature of Jesus Christ. Was he more God than human? Was he more human than God? How do these two natures interact? How can that be? And there's lots of heresies that sounded really good initially, but when they really, when you really pulled out the scalpel, when you really dug down, man, it, it really undid the purpose of why God sent Jesus in the first place to provide atonement for sin, to rescue people from their sins. So what is the significance of the virgin birth? On, it, it highlights the supernatural. On one end of Jesus' life is the supernatural conception. On the other end is the supernatural resurrection and ascension. Our modern minds, listen, with our scientific methods, like to edit out the supernatural. But when we do this, we remove God and are left with a lifeless religious textbook. 
So we find right there at the beginning, at the threshold of the New Testament, an amazing miracle. And at the center of Christianity lies a miracle. It's called the incarnation. At the very heart and soul of our faith, it's supernatural when God becomes a man in the form of a baby. God came to earth as a fetus. How does that work? And like Mary, our initial response is, how can this be? But we, like Mary, need to follow in her footsteps and push through that initial disbelief, that modernistic, scientific rejection of the supernatural. Because when you reject the supernatural, you reject Christianity. There is no Christianity without it. You have a supernatural conception. You have a supernatural ministry. You have a supernatural resurrection. And you have a supernatural ascension. Let me offer a few thoughts on why this is a foundational doctrine to our faith. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that, the, that our salvation can never come through human effort. It must be the work of God himself. Only, our salvation only comes through the supernatural work of God. So it wasn't Mary and Joseph concocting this plan. It wasn't Mary and Joseph creating this elaborate strategy to provide salvation to the planet, to humanity. It was God interrupting their lifestyles, their lives. He intervened. He did it. God saved us when we could not save ourselves. Mary and Joseph did not create Jesus. God sent him. Only God can save. God did it. Look at our best efforts. Come on now. Back up and look at humanity's best efforts. You look at us here, even in Canada and North America, and some would say we're at the pinnacle of our <laughs> development. Look at all that we're capable of. We're sending vehicles to Mars, all of the amazing technological advancements that we, we can't keep up with them. And yet, listen, we can't stop killing each other. At the height of our evolvement as a species, we can't stop killing each other. So there's something deeper that's wrong here. Right? We're at the bottom of the mountain and our best minds came up, can't come up with an accurate solution. So we say it's a, it's a political movement and that's a band-aid on the surface. So we come up with these different political platforms. It's education. And so we try to, we try to reinforce education. It's behavior modification. And in the midst of all of our advancements, people are depressed. People are empty. People are lonely. In the midst of all of our technological advancements, people are desperate for something more. What's wrong with us goes deeper than politics and education, goes deeper than culture. Something is fundamentally flawed within humanity, and the Bible calls it sin. And the only person that can fix what's broken is God. That's why he sent Jesus. The God of the mountaintop saw us, you know, hurting ourselves and each other down in the valley, and we're clawing our way, trying to claw our way to the top of the mountain to find our way back to God, to find some peace, to find some, some wholeness, some satisfaction in my life. There's got to be more. 
So we're scrambling around at the bottom of the mountain for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what God did at Christmas. He sent himself in the form of Jesus on a rescue mission to do for us what we never could do for ourselves, what our sharpest minds could never create. So stop trying to construct this Babel 2.0. This arrogance, this rebellion, that's the heart of sin, right? That's what sin is, it's rebellion. I don't need God. We don't need God. Well, how's that working out for you? The virgin birth is the best way to explain the incarnation. Listen to, as Grudem says, it probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and send him to earth without the benefit of any human parent. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents and have his full divine nature miraculously united to his human nature. But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God. The virgin birth makes it possible for Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. And this is where it really gets down here when it comes to the virgin conception and the direct connect to our atonement, to our justification. All human beings inherit legal guilt and a corrupt moral nature from their first father, Adam. Because the spirit brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, the child was to be holy, the work of the Holy Spirit. That prevented, that in Mary prevented not only the transmission of sin from Joseph, but also the transmission of sin from Mary. Jesus has two natures, human and divine. Listen, they are inseparable. Jesus will forever be the God-man, fully God and fully human, two distinct natures in one person. Jesus' humanity and divinity are not mixed but are united without the loss of separate identity. Jesus had two natures but one personality. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. So for his human nature, Jesus ascended into heaven. And where is Jesus right now? It's a trick question. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of his heavenly father in heaven. But in his divine nature, Jesus says, we're two or more gathered in my name. There I am also. So Jesus in his human nature is sitting at the right hand of his father. But in his divine nature, he is here with us right now. In his human nature, Jesus becomes weak and tired and hungry and thirsty. But in his divine nature, he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. One snapshot in the Gospels of this is when Jesus is asleep. Why does someone sleep? Because they are weary, because they are exhausted. And there's this storm that's about to sink the boat. And the disciples are freaking out and says, Jesus, wake up. We're about to die. Something like that. So they're shaking Jesus. He's tired. He's weary. He's exhausted. That's his human nature. He's hungry. He's thirsty. But then he stands up and his divine nature, peace, be still in the storm. Whoa. Two natures, one person, one personality. The two natures are necessary. Listen, this is it. 
The two natures of Jesus are necessary for Christ to be the perfect high priest. The union of the two natures in one person is essential for Jesus to be the mediator between God and humanity. This has to be true. If this isn't true, then the wheels fall off. Because what makes Jesus special? What makes him gloriously unique? So he's hanging on the cross, right? At the, at the end of his life. There's two other people that are dying with him. There are two criminals that are crucified on either side of Christ, and yet their sacrifice on the cross did not equal atonement for anyone. Their sacrifice wasn't significant. Yet the one in the middle, there was something radically different about his death because there was something radically different about his life because there was something radically different about his birth. What would it mean if I were to die for you? You'd appreciate it if I threw myself in front of a bullet, if I pushed you out of the way and got hit by a car. What would it mean if I were to die for you? If a decent person, if a moral person were to die for you, it would not affect your eternity. But Jesus, the incarnation, God in the flesh, when he dies, it changes everything. One theologian notes that Jesus Christ is not Jesus Christ is not a schizophrenic. It's not true that in Jesus there are two self-consciousnesses. There are two levels of consciousness of the one self. There is a divine consciousness that he has as the eternal son of God, and there is the human consciousness of the same fact. The two forms of consciousness remain distinct, united in the one person communicating through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a double being. He's not a compound being. He's not some type of hybrid being. He is the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ, complete in his deity and perfect in his humanity. That is biblical Christology. That is who Jesus was, and that is who Jesus is. How does your definition of Jesus match up with the Bible's? But you've pieced together kind of this potpourri picture of Christ over the years. A little bit here, a little bit there. You're creating your own personal deity that fits you. It's a customized God for your culture, for your life, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible sometimes. I'm asking all of us today to wrestle with this essential question. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? One author helps us to see the implications of this. Listen closely. If the virgin birth of Jesus is untrue, then the story of Jesus changes greatly. We would have a sexually promiscuous young woman lying about God's miraculous hand in the birth of her son, raising that son to declare that he was God and then joining his religion. But if Mary is nothing more, listen, than a sinful con artist, then neither she nor her son should be trusted because both the clear teaching of Scripture about the beginning of Jesus' earthly life and the character of his mother are at stake. We must contend for the virgin birth. I want us to wrestle today with the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. 
We have limited options when it comes to how we respond to the real Jesus. I've adapted these from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. So who is Jesus Christ? That's the ultimate question. And your eternity depends on how you respond to that question. Who is Jesus? We have limited options, biblically. The first option is Jesus was a liar. He was not who he said he was, and he knew it. So was Jesus this master manipulator? Was Jesus this legendary charlatan? That's one possible option. Second one is this. Jesus was a lunatic. He was not who he thought he was, and he did not know it. Was Jesus Christ crazy? So either the, 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 the biblical options in response to who is Jesus are very limited. All of us here are going to fall into one of these four responses to that question. Either you have to say he was a liar and I reject what the Bible says about him. The best authority that we have about the real Jesus comes from the scriptures. Either he's a liar, either he's a lunatic, or thirdly, Jesus is legend. This is the most popular one of liberal theologians and some of us. He was not who others later imagined him to be. So Jesus did certain things, but in the minds of his followers, it like snowballed until now he becomes this legendary character in the mind of his later followers. So was Jesus a liar? Was Jesus a lunatic? Is Jesus a legend? Or the fourth and final option, all of us will have to respond in one of these four ways. All of us fall into one of these four camps. Either you say Jesus was a liar, either he was a lunatic, either he was a legend, or Jesus is Lord. He was who he said he was, and his life, death, and resurrection prove it. If the virgin birth is true, that redefines history. Larry King was right. If Jesus, we talk, we talk about the kingdom, that's the, that's the title of this series, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom requires a king. And if Jesus truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords with a supernatural conception, with a supernatural resurrection, with a supernatural ascension, and someday a supernatural return, that demands allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords that demands loyalty to the ultimate king of this kingdom. That demands the highest level of devotion and commitment and sacrifice. That demands worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. May your word now, like a light cutting through the fog, Bring clarity to our Christology. Biblical clarity, God. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. And may your spirit, like a spotlight, illuminate your word. And may your word, like a chisel, shape our faith, Lord, our doctrine, our life. May it be the foundation. May your word be the ultimate source of authority for us. As we answer that question, who is Jesus Christ?
If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.